Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s Canada. In this episode, I speak with Andy Eichhorn of Calgary, Alberta's Zuka Baby. In the mid-90s when you guys got together, what was the uh, music scene like in Calgary, maybe Alberta as a whole? Well, Calgary was always a bit of a, I don't know if it still is, but it was always kind of a satellite onto its own in a way because, you know, a lot of people moved from Saskatchewan and Manitoba either out to Vancouver or out east of Toronto to do their thing. And we had lots of friends who did both, but then we just kind of stayed here and, you know, band to band to band and that kind of thing. And the beauty of it was, I think, you know, you can do your own thing here. Probably Edmonton's the same. Saskatoon, Regina are probably similar where there's nobody to tell you how to do it. You know, you can just do your own thing and either tour or just go out and play or stay in town. And you don't have to really be influenced by what was going on east or west, that kind of thing. Plus, it was really tough to, you know, get into a van and pay for a tour when you weren't on a label and that kind of thing. So a lot of bands were just here creating their own little ruckus, you know. When you and Reed got together and the other fellas, what was the goal of the band? Good question. Um, yeah, it's so long ago, sometimes it's hard to to remember exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, we had, Reed and I had met in the early 90s, I guess, and we were in a band that, you know, locally wasn't that successful. We had fun. We were kind of stretching our boundaries a little bit musically and trying some different things and that kind of just fell apart kind of naturally. And then when we started Zucker baby, like right from the beginning, we both kind of looked at each other and went, how come there's so many people at our show? <laughs> so like when we first started playing, it seemed to just seem to be something that gelled right away. So, so right away we were like, cause we had friends who were in bigger bands at the time and we just wanted to be doing what they were doing. And we'd both been, well, he's a bit older than me. So he'd been out playing a lot more, um, professionally and that kind of thing. And we just wanted to take it out, you know, make a record, make video. We had a plan, you know, we, we were going to do it independently ourselves. And we took that plan to a few different labels who had never really responded to our previous band positively. And they were like, Oh, so you're going to do this. Hey. And our general thought was, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do it this way. And then people just started saying, how can we, how can we help? How can we get involved? Or can we throw some money at the problem? Sure. Bring it on. So you mentioned contacting some uh, record labels and whatnot. Um, how did that exactly come to be? Yeah, that, those are the days when, you know, you would just unsolicited send demo tapes or CDs or whatever it was with a letter with your contact information. And oftentimes you wouldn't get any response. And if you were lucky, you'd get a, a piece of paper that said something like appreciate what you're doing but just doesn't fit with what we're looking for right now please keep us posted in the future with your endeavors that kind of thing so that was pretty common for most bands i think and i don't even know how we got in contact with i think you had to just dial people up randomly and see if you could get through their secretaries or something like that and then as time goes on if you're playing a bit more you're doing festivals like music west and vancouver i think at the time and there was one in Toronto, I think it's North by Northeast now. I don't know if it was always called that. So if you were lucky enough to get a showcase at one of those places, you would just, again, cold call as many people as you could to try to get them to come to your time slot and hopefully win them over with your live show. And I think we did that 
pretty successfully in Vancouver in maybe 95, I want to say. And that's kind of where we got some like real record company interest and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was weird. Like, again, Reed and I both would scratch our heads and say, what's happening here? Like, it's really happening. Uh, for us, it was a bit, it was a bit uh, kind of different. We initially got some interest from a U.S. record company or two, which was, again, really awesome because the difference between a U.S. deal and a Canadian deal is quite a bit of money. So we were, you know, kind of pumped that we had some United States of Americans coming up to see us play in Calgary at a little club. But then as things go, that fell through. We, at that point, we had a lot of Canadian labels because of the American interest in the band kind of looking at us. So we were able to sign with uh, Mercury, I think it was, Mercury Records. I was looking through your liner notes of the, the debut record in preparation for the interview, and I saw that Brian Pot fan was your A&R rep. Is that the Northern Pike Brian Pot fan? He was after the the Pikes broke up for a while, I think in 93 or something like that. And he uh, got a job as an A&R guy at uh, Polygram. Um, so he was signing bands and working with artists and that kind of thing for a few years. And I was a huge fan growing up in Saskatchewan of his band. So that was kind of fun for us, for sure. Did he give you guys any kind of advice or anything like that, knowing that he had just gone through a similar thing pretty recently? Yeah, he was he was a big uh, a big cheerleader of, well, I was going to say not listening to the record company, even though he was the record company, but being, you know, just tr- true to yourself as an artist and, uh, you know, writing the, the kind of songs that you wanted to write. Because it's pretty easy to get, I think, kind of caught up in what everybody else wants. Like if you think you're kind of writing songs for a certain kind of an audience, once you have an audience and stuff, you can kind of get a little, a little messy that way. And he was always great for kind of keeping us sort of grounded, you know, and uh, staying true to yourself, that kind of thing. But he kind of stayed out of it too. He wasn't super heavy handed because he being a writer and a creator and, and, a, and a guitar player and a singer, he kind of knew the drill, I think, more than somebody that didn't come from that background. So when he starts signing a deal with a record label, can you really, you know, kind of explain that to people who haven't had that experience and describe what that experience was like? Well, for us, it was pretty open because they, they liked what we were doing. And that's why they got involved, <clears throat> sorry, right, right off the bat. So we kind of had a blank slate to just do what we were doing. And they were, of course, a great resource and as far as, uh, you know, artwork and photos and who, who to work with for video directors and that kind of thing. But for the most part, we had kind of free ranges to do what we were already doing, which is awesome. The second record, things changed drastically. <laughs> it wasn't quite the same. Well, the first record came out and it was, we thought it was fairly successful, but it didn't really measure up to what the record company wanted uh, in terms of sales and stuff like that. And then that was, if some people probably in the 90s remember little thing called Napster. And that kind of changed everything from my perspective. Anyway, like as soon as file sharing happened, uh, that's when I think the last bell rung for the way things used to be. And then the way things are today kind of thing. So, so at that point, people started, you know, really kind of taking music for free, not knowing, you know, what it was doing to the artist or to the record companies. 
And that's when I think our company that we were signed to ended up, they merged with Universal Music. So they got rid of a whole bunch of people, a lot of people that were our kind of cheerleaders at uh, Polygram were turfed essentially. And there was a bunch of new people saying, oh, so what do we do with this band? So it was a bit more of a struggle for us to do the second record. A lot more people telling us what they thought we should do. Um, a lot of hurry up and wait. A lot of, well, do some more demos. We'll let you know when we give you the green light to record. So the first record came out in 97 and the second one came out in 2000. And the three years in between were pretty uh, kind of rocky and just trying because no one really knew what was going to happen. Are we going to put a record out? Yeah, are they going to drop us? Uh, what's going to happen? So, so yeah, it was a kind of a weird transition there. And I'm sure a lot of people who were in bands at that time can uh, reminisce in a similar way to what was going on, just because no one really knew what was going to happen because things were changing so drastically right then. So let's dial back a little bit. Um, so when you first get that record under your belt, what is the kind of touring environment like? Are you opening for bands or are they opening for you or... What was it like going across Canada for the first time? It was a pretty, for me, it was amazing. Um, I think I might have been 23 or 24 years old. So a young guy, you know, there's a song on the radio. <clears throat> it, you're driving through uh, town to town across the country to get to, from one end to the other. And, you know, you stop for gas in the middle of the night and you hear your song at a gas station. It's kind of weird. It's a little bit bizarre. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of videos at Much Music thankfully played and that helped us a whole bunch um because if you can imagine being you know a fairly small town kid in the middle of uh the prairies and then you you wind up in toronto walking down queen street and people walk up to you and say hey you're in that band that's on much music it was kind of a kind of a neat experience um we played anything we could do like we did whatever we could we did little shows on our own at small clubs supporting other bands if we were lucky enough to get some opening spots for bigger bands we took those um you know little radio station promotion gigs where it was just Reed and myself playing acoustically like we did whatever we could to try to spread the word as it were so we did a little something of everything what were some of the bands you got uh tight with i know you age of electric uh developed quite a, a kinship could you maybe tell us about that yeah, those guys are really important to us and, you know, still are, I think. They're all friends still. Yeah, well, those guys are, like, I'm from Saskatchewan originally, and that's where all those guys are from. I didn't know them well back then, but met them when they were, you know, playing through different club circuits and that kind of thing back then. And Reed knew them all quite well as well from doing the same kind of bar circuit bands in the uh, the early 90s, late 80s. That kind of thing. And then I didn't meet Reed through any of those guys, but I met Reed when I moved to Calgary in uh, the early 90s. So we all kind of would hang out when we were in the same place and support each other by, you know, going up to shows and that kind of thing. And then once we had Zucker Baby up and running, I think we would open for those guys whenever it was convenient, like whether if they played in Edmonton, we, we, we might drive up there to do a, an opening set and here in Calgary, they would ask us to do the same thing. Um, and they just did some reunion shows a couple of years ago and we were lucky enough to, to open up for them again. So, so it's been a long time. We've known those guys and they moved out to Vancouver in the early nineties 
or mid nineties. And that was a great connection for us. Cause it opened a bunch of doors to play out there once in a while and just to get to know people and uh, people who recorded music and people who made videos. Cause they, they knew guys out there who did all that kind of thing. So, so yeah, they've been a great group of fellows, like-minded guys. And then we actually went out, I think, yeah, we did a cross Canada thing with them when they uh, were on the make a past a pet record. And we had our first album out and that was great. Cause we were already such good friends that touring was more like a, like a sleepover that never ended. You know, like when you're kids <laughs> just kind of hanging debaucherous? out, not really. I don't, I don't remember too much debauchery. We were pretty, <laughs> pretty tame. I think from, all things rock and roll. I mean, I'm not saying nothing never got broken, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was more like telling stories, telling jokes. I have memories of being in hotel rooms across the country with all those guys, but especially Kurt, the, the drummer, and Reed, our guitar player, singing songs into the wee hours of the night, like just stuff from all over the place, like not rock and roll, just 50s songs, like April Wine songs, uh, show tunes, like and laughing a lot. So we had a lot of fun, for sure.
was the relationship like between different record labels trying to get on a tour together? Um, I think that, like in the indie days, before they, like they always kind of, I think, retained their independent status. I think Universal might have been uh, a distribution company for them and stuff, but they kind of owned their music and that kind of thing where we we signed our lives away. We signed our souls away. Just kidding. Um, we signed directly to the record company. So they own the masters of our recordings and that kind of thing. Um, I don't think it really matters too much. It does probably help that if you're on the same label, there's a lot of communication that can be quicker because you have the same people working for you and stuff. Um, we were just friends in the early days. So it was more like a phone call, like Ryan would call and say, we're playing uh, Edmonton on the 14th. You guys want to do a 45 minute opening set sure we'll be there that kind of thing but uh we did i think some of this is so foggy now but i, I think we shared the same booking agency so it was easy to to put a tour together um back then and we were both promoting a record at the same time both had videos at the same time and you know those guys were more successful at that point than we were so it was great there was no like uh who's going to open for who like those guys were definitely doing something special and we were more than happy to go out there and give it an hour in every town and city or college or university that we could. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, I'm just thinking about stuff coming up as I'm talking about it. Yeah, we did a lot of shows with those guys actually. Um, probably one of the tighter groups because again, the friendship was there and it was, it was a lot of fun. We toured with a lot of bands over the years that we probably didn't necessarily gel with, but were great, great experiences. Um, I could see some of those bigger bands like we did a cross Canada tour with collective soul back in might've been 2000 or something like that. And you know, those guys were huge. Yeah. Huge band. You know, the songs, like every song they played when we were watching them play, uh, I was like, that was a hit. And that was a hit. And that's on the radio right now. And that's another one. I know like you didn't even have to own the, the albums to know their songs. Cause it was, it was that popular. So that's kind of neat to see too, just on another scale, the big rock and roll, millionaire touring machine kind of thing did you guys have any kind of uh interaction with them they were really friendly to us and stuff i mean we were kind of a weird band like you know a little seemingly extroverted but a little bit introverted like you know it's kind of daunting to even though yes i was in a band i was a singer in a band you know you're watching these guys who you might have grown up watching or before you were signed to a label uh you know you saw concerts and those guys were up there so you know, it's a little bit daunting when you're talking to millionaire rock stars and they're saying like, oh, yeah, how was your uh, three days off? Oh, we f- we flew down to L.A. and went to a party and flew back. What did you guys do? Uh, we drove for three days straight to get to this gig. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a true story. Like we, I think we we were in Winnipeg with them. And then we had the deadhead from Winnipeg all the way to Toronto. So we just drove as far as we could every day and stayed overnight wherever we were. And then met up with them again in Toronto to do a few dates there in Ottawa and Montreal and that kind of thing. But they had flown back to L.A. to go to a couple parties, fly back. So it was that kind of thing. There was kind of a big juxtaposition there of like the struggling rock and roll band and uh, the band who'd already made it, you know, kind of a difference there. Exactly. Just that juxtaposition, like having a, a video on much music in Canada is a lot different than having a a video on MTV in America. Exactly. I was just having that conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago of how if you have a if you have a song in the top ten or top twenty in Canada versus one 
in the United States, it's a completely different ball game. Like it's a different royalties. It's different levels of this levels of that. Both are great, but uh, it's just the difference between the populations, right? You've got 300 million plus versus 30 million. It's just, it's just numbers. But to kids on the street, if they see your video on much music right next to the latest Soundgarden video, they're not going to be able to differentiate who's more famous. Exactly. You're both on TV and you're 14 years old watching your, your uh, music channel. So, so from that perspective, it's, it's kind of cool. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the kind of beautiful things about the 90s is the kind of creation and the maturation of the star system in Canada with things like Much Music and Chart Magazine. And In fact, I was actually just looking through your issue of Chart Magazine, which you guys raced the cover last night. Did you have that one? <laughs> nice. I remember it well. Yeah, because before, the, I mean, I remember growing up in the 80s, you know, there was only a few bands ever that were ever kind of seemingly being pumped out of Canada or within Canada. So it's a completely different uh, thing now, which is great. There's just so much going on. Earlier, you mentioned um, getting some interest from the U.S. labels. Um, did you guys ever attempt to crack the U.S. or any other markets around the world? We would have liked to, for sure. We had management that was based in San Francisco, so we've been down there a few times to do some stuff, but we never really got to tour in the, the U.S. Being signed to a Canadian label is a bit weird. Uh, it doesn't guarantee you necessarily like a worldwide release. Um, and at that time, I think if you did sign a U.S. deal, it's kind of an automatic that you get a release in other markets. At least that's how it worked back then. Um, so we signed a Canadian deal with Polygram. And I think they use kind of a wait and see thing. Um, again, I could be completely off base, but I think they kind of wait and see how it does in Canada first. And then so if you're signed to... XYZ records in Canada um, and you start selling some some records and charting with your single and that kind of thing and people are responding positively to it then they might uh, you know tap the XYZ label in New York or London and say hey you might want to put these guys on your radar and uh, kind of works like that I think um, we had a few opportunities but again like I said earlier with uh, what kind of happened in the mid 90s with file sharing and record companies kind of feeling the pinch of that. A lot of people just started to kind of focus on what was right in front of them and not look around in other countries for bands they could try to break. They were just a little bit more kind of on top of figuring out what was going on in their own stable at the time. So so sadly, long-winded way of saying, no, we really didn't get a, a shot at the other countries and that kind of thing but the weird thing now is i get emails from people from all over the place saying you know i got your record through this service or whatever and i can't believe i never heard of it before and love this song and that kind of thing so so it's kind of neat again being this far along and having people respond to music you made 20 years ago it's kind of cool speaking of music you made 20 years ago uh andromeda is a is a big song for a lot of people um, what can you tell me about the writing of that song and the recording of that song and any kind of uh, background? Yeah, I mean, again, that's one I'll never take for granted. I think at the time we were writing feverishly. Uh, Reed and I were both kind of writing on our own and we'd bring what we had to each other and then we would both kind of work on things together. He would finish off something I might have started. And 
know, part of it was a respect thing too. We we would uh, not want to come in completely saying this is all done. All you have to do is play on it, or all you have to do is sing these these lyrics. So we had this kind of really cool mutual respect thing happening when it came to the right. So that song was mostly his. He he came to me with that sort of framework. Um, no lyrics, though. I think I wrote all the lyrics for that song. I should know this, right, by now. Um, pretty sure I wrote all the lyrics for that song and some melodic ideas because he would always have a bit of a framework or he'd have something very specific like i don't know what the rest of the song is going to be like but right here it has to do this <laughs> and then i'd take that home and go okay great i'm gonna i'm gonna soak this up and uh try to put my spin on it and you know i think we tried to impress each other too like we take away you know what we worked on together and then the next time we got back in a room together it was always like uh okay check this out i don't know if you're gonna like it but this is what i got i hope you like it here we go so that was happening a lot, and that's kind of why I think the band worked so well for that small moment was uh, we were really on a roll when it came to, to writing together. Um, anyway, so he came with that song pretty much ready to roll, and then I wrote lyrics for it, and we demoed it, I think, once, and it came out on a, a local Calgary compilation. A bunch of bands got together, and a couple of fans who were really into the, the local music scene at the time. And I can't remember what it's called. It'll come to me though. Um, it was called, Ooh, I'm so pretty. And that was the title of this compilation. And it was, a, I think 10 or 12 bands that were playing the same kind of clubs in town here in Calgary from all over the map. You know, it wasn't all the same kind of sounding bands. And if we put that song on it and jealousy from the first album. So there's a recording of that of Andromeda out there that sounds a little bit different than the one that people seem to love. Um, similar, but just a little bit different. Reed always was the guy who had more of a vision in the studio as far as what we should sound like, or, you know, some of the technical elements, how we could sprinkle this on or treat this guitar, or, you know, make this sound a little bit like that. And I was more just kind of along for the ride. That doesn't sound good, but I was. <laughs> More of a, you know, I was, you know, I was working on lyrics, trying to be a good singer, um, trying to write my own songs, trying to add to it and that kind of thing. But he really was the quarterback in the in the studio and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know. It was a magical little song, really. Um, and the other guys in the band, too, were great at chipping in with ideas and, you know, oh, listen to this record by so-and-so or I'm really digging this. And, you know, everything kind of made its way into our little uh, tool bag and that kind of thing. Looking back on it, it's a really weird song because it starts off with just a stark naked vocal mm -hmm. and some noise in the background. And I listen to it occasionally or I'll hear it and I kind of, you know, it, it takes me aback because it's kind of a ballsy move. And, you know, just to let the singer be heard without any rock band behind it and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's a softer kind of approach. It's uh it's not a screaming kind of song. So so I was really surprised when it uh got chosen by the record company to be our first single. I thought it was pretty weird that that would be what they would want to release into the world as the first offering from this brand new band. But it worked. It it got us a lot of attention. People really gravitated towards it and I think it was our highest charting video uh on much music that we ever did. So 
so it got some attention for sure. So in hindsight, great move. Record company, great idea. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And it's interesting because that, that track actually closes the record, I, I believe. So, I mean, it's not often the very last song on the record yeah. is the very first single. Good point. Yeah, I never thought of it, but you're right. Yeah, sometimes by the time you get to the end of the record, it's just a couple of token songs to get you out. But And we always ended with that one live, too, just because it was so bombastic and, and uh, dramatic at the end, crescendoing up into that big whatever it is at the end. So, so it was a great closer for us too. Was um, getting that high up in the vocal, vocal range. I mean, was that lessons? Is that practice? Is that natural? How does the uh, one train his voice to, uh, to sing that every night? Well, I don't know if I, I sang it well every <laughs> night, but I did attempt to. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think my memory of that song, you know, when you write a song, you play it live when you're an unsigned band, you know, you're getting a gig, whatever you can. And it kind of changes every night, just like a comedy show or, or sometimes a you know a, an actor in a in a theatrical thing where you're kind of you're working it on stage. Sometimes you might go for a different note here, or go for a different note there. Or the guitar solo might be different and that kind of thing. So that's kind of the fun of doing the work is when you're playing live uh, before you release something, you can you can kind of mess around with it even unintentionally. Just it comes out differently sometimes when you're playing live. And we were playing in Lethbridge one night before we had recorded the song professionally. And we'd played it many times. <clears throat> and then at the end, I just went up and up and up. Mm. And I looked over at Reed, and he was like, going to be like, yeah, you got to remember that <laughs> kind of thing. And you could just feel like, okay, it really kind of capped off the song. So we kind of discovered that it should go up like that at the end by playing it live and seeing reaction from people and that kind of thing. So yeah, that was kind of neat. I can't believe I remember that, but it kind of always stuck with me like, okay, this is working. You can feel it in the room, which is a cool moment for any artist to have is when you're playing or singing and you can you can really feel a, a reaction from people you just feel it in the room a lot of people probably play their whole lives and never feel that so pretty special you paint your body beautiful all the colors of the sky Blinded by bubble gum, I never asked you why. If this is heaven, we'll be alright. If we're in hell, it's way past midnight. It's a mistake.
so how as success kind of uh you guys gained a little bit of success with you know the much music videos and the and the magazines how was the relationships within the band at that point some of us were as good of friends other like we had a few members that you know would gone on to leave and it was reading myself who stayed the course so it's different for everybody um i think yeah, I kind of learned a lot about myself back then. Like I needed a little bit of alone time. We'd pull into a city, I'd check in a hotel and then take off and go for a walk. And I wouldn't be seen again until I needed to be seen just to get some headspace. You know, when you're stuck in a van with uh, six other people, like a couple of road crew people making you sound good every night, eating every meal together, as people can imagine. Yeah. You know, it gets a little grating at times. I think we did fairly well at kind of holding it together. Um, a lot of the guys have been experienced playing on the road for years in bar bands or this or that. So it wasn't like it was anybody's complete first time out of town unchaperoned or anything. So it was, it was pretty good. We were pretty lucky too, because we did a little bit of touring, like short range stuff before we got a record deal. So we had a brand new van, we had a trailer, we had a bunch of gear they paid for. We were staying in nicer hotels, maybe not the nicest, but you know, it wasn't like we were sleeping on people's floors. Like we had done, you know, a couple of years prior, you drive up to Edmonton or, drive to Saskatoon or Regina and play a gig and, you know, beg your buddy to stay on his, his floor, that kind of thing. So, you know, it wasn't like it was, it wasn't torture or anything like that. It's pretty fun for the most part. Had a lot of fun. Did you guys have a chance to do any of those uh, edge fests or somersaults or anything like that? I am foggy on the names of the festivals. I know we did edge fest in Barrie because that one we almost didn't make it to because we got a flat tire. Oh, no things. Yeah. We were in Toronto and we we're driving to Barrie and I think our the trailer we were pulling with our equipment blew a tire. And this is right before cell phones were a big deal. I can't believe I'm saying <laughs> that. But so I think we had one cell phone for the band. You know, it was a band cell phone. <laughs> and somehow we tried, like traffic was really heavy. A lot of people going to the, that, that concert plus the regular Ontario traffic. Um, and somehow, like, I was ready to give up. I was like, well, we're not going to make it. This isn't going to happen for us. Like, we got a flat tire. We have nobody. We don't know how to get anybody out here to help us. But somehow, I think Reed saved the day. I, he just kind of took charge, and we ended up getting there. And we might have, they might have bumped our set time with somebody else or something like that, but we ended up playing. And I'll always remember uh, the head of our record company at that time, a, a man named Doug Chappelle, I believe. He was like a, an industry giant a well-respected guy who spent his whole life in the record business. He was at the side of the stage watching us with some other people. And either we got on late or we went over our allotted time. And then the people that were running the festival were like, shut it down. You got to, you're done. And us being like upstanding, you know, Canadian boys were like, oh, I'm sorry. Sure. We'll just turn off and go off stage. And then Doug takes me aside. And he goes, don't you ever do that. If somebody tries to shut you down, you turn it up louder and you play longer. Let them shut you down. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great <laughs> advice from a grandmaster. <laughs> Just keep on playing rock and roll. So that was, the, I believe that was the same show that that happened. Again, my memory could be a little foggy, but, but we did that one. I think we played in Ottawa too for uh, with uh, Edgefest. Yeah. With a couple other bands and we got to see all those great Canadian rock acts that are still rocking today like our lady peace was there i think it was their festival or at least they were one of the headlining acts so yeah those were fun because i mean it's just music fans there was tons of people at the, the smaller stages and then you know a bigger band would play at the main stage and they'd all rush to that and we would watch bands from the side of the stage uh just kind of in awe of the whole experience 
and it's funny you put up a fence between a band and their fans and it makes the fans you know surge the fence it's so weird like signing autographs for people and shoving little pieces of paper and magazines through little holes in a, a metal fence it's just kind of a weird experience but yeah those were fun i wish we could have done more when i see your your uh ads uh and and posts on instagram i'm like oh that would have been a good one to be on <laughs> See, throughout the years, seeing some of the different, there were a lot of similar acts that would play every year, it seemed, but then there was always a few pop-ups. And I, sometimes I, I worked in a, a music, like a record store for years growing up and even through uh, the Zucker Baby time, I would go back and do that when we weren't busy touring and recording and that kind of thing. So I sold a lot of people's records and listened to so much music, like it, as people hopefully remember um it wasn't always as easy as just typing in a the first three letters to a band's name on your phone and getting a, a sample of their music you'd have to go physically buy it and i got a chance to if i didn't buy everything i at least got to to listen to tons and tons of music just because i was in a, a record store for eight hours a day so i got pretty into like a lot of the canadian stuff that happened before us and during when we were playing and and active and, and even after. So, yeah. So some of those bands that I look back and see the posts, I'm like, Oh, that would have been cool to have seen them there. Yeah. There's just so much going on. There was a lot of different, different styles happening on the same festival. Really cool. It's interesting working at a record store in, in the nineties while you were still doing the Zuka baby thing. What was that like, you know, coming back from the road or coming back from a video shoot or what have you. And then you're, you're working and you're selling records. I mean, were you selling your own record as well? Or was it, was it anything kind of bizarre stuff like that happening? I think I might've signed a, a couple of, yeah, I might've signed a couple of, uh, signed a couple of our copies of our record while ringing one in. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty humble. Right? Yeah, that's Canadian right there. <laughs> That'll be thirteen ninety nine. Could you sign this? <clears throat> sure. Just let me step away from the till here. I mean, I left my job for a while because we were, busy doing stuff but um always went back to it yeah you know, just to make some extra money but yeah so it was weird like i saw a lot of bands do like they used to do in-store performances back in those yeah, days so who, who would you see maybe uh the well i remember um yeah, i used to work at an hmv yeah, me too yeah, they were right all gone a little nice um so i was lucky enough to work at the one in calgary downtown um so that was kind of the biggest you know the most important one because it was downtown right and i distinctly remember seeing big sugar we were all huge fans who wasn't, if you weren't, I don't think you have a pulse, but <laughs> anyway, so Gordy and band came in and just did a stripped down kind of thing. Just packed, you know, with people either planning to come and see it or just walking by on their lunch break and wondering what the ruckus was. So, you know, seeing those guys play over the years, a few times was always cool, but just to see them in a record store, thank it. was pretty cool. Um, do you remember a band called Everclear from the nineties? They were from California. Yeah, yeah, Santa Monica. Yeah. So they did a they did an in store and there were so many people and they started crowd surfing. No they crushed they crushed the rec the, the the cases where the records get <laughs> for the CDs and cassettes get set like they crushed them. It was crazy. So, you know, a couple things like that. I mean there's lots of low key stuff right. too, but and back in those days record companies used to have record reps, as you know, in every city for promotions and and sales and that kind of thing. So they'd bring their artists to town. If they had a concert in the, you know, in the city, they would bring them to the record store just to say hi and meet the record store people because that's who was talking to 
your buyers, you know, like that's the people who sell, sold the records were the people who were, you know, talking to, to fans about uh, the new Pursuit of Happiness album and that kind of thing. So like, you know, I got to meet Mo Berg because he just came into the store with his record company rep and just say hi to a couple guys working in a record store. So that happened quite a bit with a lot of Canadian Canadian acts. There's probably a lot of guys out there who probably don't think they've ever met me, but they but they met me at a record store. <laughs> you know, I remember when Moist got big, they brought those guys in to uh, you know introduce them to people at the record store level and that kind of thing. And those guys were on a huge buzz, I'm sure, going across the country, you know, meeting people at radio stations and record stores and that kind of thing. So so yeah, I met a lot of guys doing that that gig for sure. I have a picture I just saw the other day of me and Burton Cummings, no which I had forgotten about because um, he did a, at that point he was just doing a few solo shows once in a while and he came in and I don't think he played in the, in the, in the HMV, but he did come in to, to shake some hands and that kind of thing. So I have this picture of me smiling with Burton Cummings, give me a thumbs up that I'll, I'll probably always cherish. Did you guys ever do it in store as a band, like performing? I think so. <laughs> Again, I remember a lot of stuff and then other things. I'm, I I do distinctly remember playing some kind of a music store in Toronto or the Toronto area, like a Sam the Record Man or a, an HMV or something like that. We did a, a rooftop gig above 102.1 The Edge in Toronto, right on Young Street with Age of Electric when we that big cross Canada tour, which is kind of Beatlesque in a right. way. Because, you know, that famous playing on top of the roof kind yeah, of thing. So sure. I don't know how it, it was set up back then. But there was a bit, there was some kind of a an open air thing on the second level, so people down on the street could see the band. It wasn't like so high up that you couldn't see anybody. But yeah, we, so we did that. I remember that being kind of cool because there was you know the street was sort of uh, sectioned off with barricades, and there was quite a few people down there looking up. So that was pretty cool for sure. Again, when you when you grow up watching that famous Beatles on top of the uh, Apple building or whatever they were. We're doing it just kind of makes you think like whoa this is this is pretty crazy we're doing the same thing weird and there's actually people down there did anybody document it i don't know it's got to be something that's the thing about that time yeah, i know they're on the, it on was the edge three yeah. cell phones with cameras yeah and you'd have to be you know a pretty forward-thinking person to have packed or even own a a, a portable handy cam or whatever they called them back then i'm sure there's some kind of footage somewhere yeah, there's got to be somebody like some media outlet probably was down there, but but uh, I've seen pictures here and there on some people's feeds and whatnot, like actually just still photos and that right. kind of thing. That's another thing. Like we didn't take enough pictures back then either. That would have been cool to have a phone with this the capabilities that we have today, just to have those little snippets. Yeah, back in the day, you had to handle real film and stuff, man. It was no easy chore. Wind it up and all this, you drop it off somewhere and get it deleted. Man, it was a process. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think people remember that. Like the young, the young folk, they don't know no, that. They don't know the struggles we had to go through, man. It was. <laughs> that's right. And then take it to the drugstore and talk to a human <laughs> being. Right. Weird. That's right. Was that the highlight, gig-wise, or was there any other kind of memorable gigs from that time period? Like maybe on, the, on that first record's run, or. Right off the bat, we, re- we released our record, the first one in I think it was May of '97, and. Like I said earlier, we we would do whatever we could. We'd play anything. Um, of course, we wanted big gigs, but we'd do whatever we could. And I think it was just shortly after that came out, we were on the same label. Like Polygram had uh, 
the newest in excess record uh, the last one that came out mm. before michael hutchins died and we got asked to open up uh, a show for them and we were, we were like what are you serious um so we opened up for in excess in vancouver we were over the moon to be opening up for this band who i personally loved growing up um in the 80s uh they were huge obviously commercially and i probably played their kick album that came out in 97 to the point where i'd have to buy another one because i played it so much so we were over the moon we played we opened up for those guys we did one show um again in hindsight i wish we could have locked in a few do you remember back in those days again beer companies would uh I think Molson specifically had this thing called blind date. So they put tickets in beer cases. And if you won them, sort of like the Willy Wonka golden oh, ticket, yeah. Okay, yeah. you get flown to this blind date where they would have a band and they promised it would be a rock band. That was huge, but you wouldn't know who it was until you got right. there. So they did that for in excess. Oh, I thought they were going to say you were one of the bands. I was like, ah, oh, let's go. No, I wish. <laughs> um, no, they did that in excess with the band. So we knew that they were going to be the blind date thing. So we got invited to the blind date. It was in a smaller kind of a venue, more of a club kind of thing. But I think ACDC might have been recording in Vancouver, or at least some of the guys were maybe at that blind date show. So there was people talking. You could hear murmurs in the crowd, like, "Who do you think it is? Is it is it, uh, is it Aerosmith? Is it blah blah blah?" And we we're like thinking, like, we know who it is. <laughs> So they came out this little club thing and blew the roof off the place. It was amazing. They played all their hits. They played songs off the new record. Michael was as charismatic a front man as he ever was. We got to meet those guys and they were, they were so nice to us. Like we were fortunate that we had a lot of, a lot of bands we met and played with kind of showed us how to be that band. They were courteous. They were funny. Their crew was amazing to us. Like, at one point, we were sound checking for the actual show the next night um, after that blind date thing. And Kirk, their sax player, guitar player, uh, kind of waved me over as I was kind of, you know, checking the mic and that kind of thing. And, and he's like, I'm not going to do an Australian accent because I'll butcher it. But he said, uh, is everybody, everything going all right? Like, you, they're treating you well? The crew's treating you well? You got enough monitors? I'm like, yeah, it's great. And he goes, like, if you need anything, I'll talk to that guy right there. His name is so-and-so. He'll sort you out and then just kind of give me the thumbs up and walked away. So these guys are huge. Like they're multimillionaire rock stars and they're still as nice as probably the day they signed a record deal. You know, like it hadn't gotten to them where they couldn't be gregarious and, and welcoming to a, an up and coming band that was, you know, obviously start starstruck to be opening up for these legends of, rock and roll so so that was a cool memory for sure there's lots of bands like that though and a lot, a lot of them are canadian i think like we did a few shows around that time the first record with uh with uh the odds who people know and love and all those guys were so nice to us like just they kind of showed us how to be good people like we weren't bad people but <laughs> i was like wow they're concerned they're concerned for us they're like asking us if everything is going okay like it was just really refreshing and, and uh, just so cool that, uh, you know, guys like Pat and Craig and, and Doug from the odds were Steven, like all those guys were really, they showed us how to be what we would, you know, 
eventually become we never got as big as those guys obviously but when we were playing shows where we had bands opening it for us we would do the same thing and make sure everybody was taken care of properly and and they could hear themselves and they had enough this and they had enough that so so they were kind of passing the torch i guess in hindsight which is pretty cool pass a torch to or nickelback i believe you they opened for you guys a few times is that not you know what i don't remember that happening like people said that to me before and i just don't want to get caught in a lie like i don't know if they did or like were they in another band no, before? stop right there I actually have and i'll and i'll post these on the uh, the social media i have some handbills of nickelback opening for, really? for, for zucker baby are you serious see that's how yeah 
that's how far my head was up my ass back then. <laughs> like I might, but then again, they weren't who they are. Of course, now, no, right? no. So how would I know? Right, they were just in um, the band, but that's wow. Like, I want to see that for sure. Because like I've said a few times over the conversation, like there's certain things I do remember quite well, and there's other things that uh, I have no recollection or something very foggy. And funny enough, Reed says the same thing. He's like, he'll text me out of the blue and say, <laughs> "Who is so and so?" I'm like, "Oh, he was the." he was the second engineer who left sick when we were doing this or that. And he, and he was like, how do you remember that stuff? I'm like, I have no idea. Like it works sometimes it's bang on. And then other times nothing. Yeah. I hear you. So yeah, I'm curious. That's cool. Again, a lot of bands morphed into other bands and that kind of thing. Right. West coast bands like in Vancouver, the, or two members went on to do this, just like Reed and I were in a band called Calliope. And then we went on to do Zucker baby. And some people remember that. And some people don't, and you'd meet so many people back in those days because sometimes there would be five bands on a bill at a club like the Night Gallery here in Calgary or the Republic. And it's so busy and it's so quick and tight to turn around. Somebody plays their half an hour and you've got like 10 minutes to get your gear up on stage, mm-hmm. get theirs off stage, plug in, do a quick line check and then start your set. And then afterwards you're drinking and you're not sure who's in what band and what's going on. Yeah. So I'm sure there's, again, like there's a lot of confusion as to, Oh yeah, I did meet you back then. Like I actually just reconnected with a, a friend of mine and I'm like, did we, you know, did we officially meet a long time ago? And he's like, yeah, back at this club in Ottawa, I was playing with so-and-so and you guys came in and I'm like, I don't even remember that man. <laughs> like no clue, but I'll take your word for it. So um, we touched on it earlier and now we can fast forward to that second record and maybe, um, you were saying that the music industry had significantly changed in that three years between the, the first record and the second record. Can you describe that um, the run of the second record and what was kind of different than the first time? Yeah, it was like night and day, really. Um, again, I don't blame anybody for it. Everybody was just doing the best they could, I'm sure. But like I alluded to, yeah, the record company, the record companies, I think no one really knew what was to come after the whole Napster thing and and file sharing and that kind of stuff. That's when people started scrambling at labels. Uh, people, a lot of people got lost their jobs. The money just wasn't coming in anymore and they didn't know what to do. So a lot of bands got dropped. A lot of people lost their gigs, um, had to find other ways to, to work in the music industry, if at all. I mean, I know a lot of people who worked for their entire adult lives in one capacity or another at a, at a record company that, you know, they're selling booze now or they're went to business for themselves in a completely different uh, industry. Um, so it really turned it on its on its side for sure. Um, so that made it really difficult for us because, like I said before, the people who were our champions who had signed us, you know, people like Brian Potvin and a lot of other great people were gone. They they moved on or lost their gigs at, at their, their respective companies and they were replaced with other people who, you know, some of them, probably dug us and some of them probably didn't know what to do with us but the personal personal attention wasn't there anymore which is obvious you know looking back on it you know if i signed a band today and then i left and did something else and my but my my partner in my business was supposed to guide their career but he really didn't feel passionate about them like what do you what do you think's gonna happen like you're just not gonna get the same kind of attention so long-winded way of saying it was just, we were trying to convince them like we were the right band for them. And we did a lot of second guessing ourselves as far as, you know, the music climate was changing too. And we were trying to be true to ourselves. We were trying to still fit in and 
the first record didn't sell as many records as the record company had hoped, which is what everybody says, no matter what you sell, it's never enough. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of a difficult transition. So we were kind of on hold for a bit and we, you know, we we're kind of told just to keep writing and demoing songs and recording songs. And, and at that point we we're going through a lot of personal stuff with our own between the band and we asked our original bass player to leave at the time because it just didn't seem like it was working with what we were doing and what he was doing. And uh, some people came and went and, and we were, yeah, it was kind of a struggle actually. And we finally got the green light to record on uh, the second record, what was to become the oddly titled platinum again, <laughs> which is a tongue in cheek reference to, you know, maybe not quite being platinum. Mm-hmm. It was a lyric from one of the songs, actually, so it kind of made sense to us, but it was a bit of a kind of a tongue-in-cheek poke at ourselves. A little self-deprecating Canadian humor, yeah. There you go, yeah. It's, you know, there's a little bit more guitar-heavy than the first album, a little less pop than the first album, a little more lavish in production. We did the first record at home in a, in a great studio called Sunday Sound that did a lot of great recordings over the years that sadly doesn't exist i don't think in that form anymore and we did it mostly ourselves with our good friend uh christian leslie was his name great audio engineer producer and again reed was at the helm of that too kind of co-producing and steering the ship the second one we did with a guy named john mclean in uh vancouver at uh he called his studio the factory and i don't know if it's still there or if it's there under another name but it used to be it used to be the old Little Mountain sound, which was where Bob Rock did Metallica and Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. Yeah, so we got to track that record in that room, which was pretty cool for recording nerds and <laughs> that kind of thing. And I'm not, I'm like, uh, not as you know into the bells and whistles and that kind of thing, but I can definitely feel a room, you know, and it was a cool place to record very rock and roll. So we got to do that out there and it was more like we had a real, not a real producer, but like an outside, not a friend who we'd kind of grown up through the ranks with, which was Christian Leslie, the guy referred to on the first record. We kind of like all grew up in that band together, even though he wasn't in the band, he did all of our recording. When we did demo tapes, he was at all of our shows. He would drive us places. He would help load gear. Like he was like a fifth member of the band. So it was like a brotherhood of, of a sort. So the, anyway, the second record was more like, well, we had like a, an outside producer who was great. John's an awesome guy, lots of great ideas. And one of the funniest men in the world. I haven't seen him in years, but infectious laugh. So anyway, we got to record out there and, you know, live out in Vancouver for, for months and feel like, we were kind of out of our little cocoon, a little element. So, and then that's what you get. I think sometimes when you move on to somewhere else, that's a little bit different. You get a different perspective and a few more people, you know, throwing their opinion in. And so it's all really collaborative. Like it's never a one person kind of job. So all the people you choose to be around you will add to the results of what you're kind of creating so so yeah that was uh it was a bit of a daunting task though to get that one actually green lit once we got the to go ahead to record it we were out there for i think like two or three months on and off mostly on trying to finish that up and then that's when we released overexposure which was a great song for us i don't know where it ended up charting around the country but it was more of a rock and roll song so it got a lot of attention it was way different than anything else we'd 
released before that we had songs like shampoo if you remember that mm-hmm. one it was pretty poppy right. and kind of kitschy heavy was a great rock song but more of a mid-tempo kind of a thing and, and overexposure was more of a for us anyway like a more of an in-your-face kind of rock and roll number so that kind of got us some different attention and it was a great song to add to our live show too because it was upbeat and up-tempo i think i've todd kearns was on your podcast already he was yeah todd and i go way back and we're not like talk every day or anything like that but he was in the room we were in a hotel room in toronto when reed and i wrote that song and todd was sitting on the bed hanging out and we were all just kind of hanging out <laughs> in between maybe doing something i don't think we were touring at that time he was just in toronto and we were there too for something but yeah i distinctly remember reed and i coming up with that idea for overexposure and Todd was in the room and Todd could have probably just as easily like, you know, got in and started going like, Oh, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Or why don't you guys do this? Um, or maybe he did. I don't know, but I don't think he did. That's what, what a gentleman he is. Is that he knew me and Reed had this little thing and we were actually like, we weren't trying to write a song. We were just kind of messing around with something and he just kind of sat in the background and just let us do our thing, <laughs> which is super cool. I'm always down for Todd Kern's story. Cause he's one of the nicest guys in music. I think, man, He's just yeah, always, beautiful human always being. nice to everybody that he's ever around, at least that I've ever witnessed. So that's cool. That's uh, Yeah, he's one of those guys. Yeah, no matter. And he's one of the biggest. He's playing one of the biggest dudes ever, and he's still as cool as he ever was, you know? Yeah, and all the people that he surrounds himself with, like all the little, I shouldn't say little, but all the offshoot little bands that he does, they're all great guys. Yeah, oh, yeah, like Tuke and like all They're all that. the same kind, kind of personality. They're, yeah, they're super nice and humble, and uh, they always kind of leave you feeling like you were the most important guy in the room. You know? Right, right, right. So what was the uh, the label support like on that last record? I mean, did you guys have, have as many videos? Did you have videos? Were the budgets the same? What about touring? And did you guys play as many shows? Or Yeah, I don't think, like, I still don't think they really knew what to do with us at the time. I don't blame anyone for it. It was just, you know, timing was just off. We got to spend our allotted recording budget making this second record. And then that's when we went out with uh, Collective Soul. And, you know, I really only think they were involved. We did one video for Overexposure, and they, they released a second single called Holiday that's on that record. But they didn't commit to a video for it. And I think at that point, they kind of, I think that's when they walked away and just were like, yeah, you know what, guys? It's just not working for us. I can't remember if that's what they said, but that's what I thought they said just not really working for us so yeah we were on the label until you know the early part of 2001 or something like that but yeah they did support us for that collective soul tour and we did all the normal promotion you would do with that kind of thing and then i think that was about it when you got the letter or the call or however you guys got informed that it wasn't working for them um what did you guys all kind of look at each other and say Okay, on to the on to the next thing, or you're like, no, no, we're gonna try to continue this band and try to find a new home. Well, it's kind of funny because how I remember it was that anyone who used to be interested in us that didn't get us, like, uh, you know, say you were auditioning managers and there was four or five different people you were talking to, but you went with this company, but those other companies just wouldn't really be there for you. They wouldn't really be interested in returning your calls. I don't think anyone was outwardly rude or or dismissive. It's just that. In this industry, it's so fickle. If you have a track record that's not you know, complete success, people generally kind of steer clear of you, you know, because it, it didn't work with this company. So why would it work if this company picked it up? That kind of thing. Mm. That's just my opinion. 
and I guess I've seen it a few times as well with other people I know. Um, sometimes no track record is better than a perceived failed track record, if you know what I mean. Right. I have a story that I will not say who they are, but I remember an A&R rep telling me that they just came from accounting and uh, Joe Blow record sold this many, but they were really projecting for this much. And the artists themselves were really, really happy because they were over the moon that they sold this many records, but it was considered to be a bit of a failure because they were projecting and they had spent, according to this over here, it, it, they needed to sell this many to make it a success. So it's really relative, you know? Like, I consider all the stuff we did successful because we got to do what we did. And a lot of us are still doing something today at whatever level. But yeah, so it's all about numbers, man. Like, if, if a record company pumps $200,000 into a record or whatever the amount is, and you don't sell X amount, it's just not going to make sense in the numbers game. So that's the business part of the music business that everybody warns you about, but it doesn't feel very good. Getting back to your question, when you, uh, you know, you get the phone call or, or you have that meeting where, where you're just not, you're just not the latest thing anymore. You're not the, the cup of tea or it's just not working. That kind of thing. So at that point, I was pretty despondent. I got to say, I think there was talk about let's just take all this great stuff we've got. You know, we had we had a vehicle, we had gear and equipment. Let's continue on and do our own thing. There was, I'm sure, talk of that, but I think at that point, because of kind of what we had gone through the three years prior, where it was so hard to kind of feel like we had a home with a label and we had to really work to convince them, like, can we make this album? Can we make this album? Can we do it? And then to just kind of be met with a bit of a, yeah, it just felt kind of bad. So I, I know I didn't really, I wasn't jumping up and down to, I was still passionate about being an artist and singing and writing, but it kind of taken it out of me a bit, to be honest with you. So I wasn't super eager, eager to like be an independent artist after this last little ride that we were on, which, you know, in hindsight, I probably wish I was a little more mature. Because I think I could have probably handled it a little bit better, but I was, you know, I was in my mid twenties, you know, full of attitude, and you know, feeling depressed about it. Right. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a you know, it's a punch in the punch in the gut, man. No doubt about it. So, what did you decide to do with your life at that point? I mean, you're 25 or whatever it is, and your whole life's ahead of you. But you have you've you've lived this whole life in the last four years that most people dream of. Yeah, weird, hey. I don't know. I just went and did my thing. I whatever it is, you know, you get a job, you do your thing you live your life yeah you meet someone you get married you have kids all that kind of good stuff so there's all kinds of great things ladies and gentlemen that you can do with your lives <laughs> if rock and roll does not work out for you take it from me um <laughs> but yeah i mean you just do your thing because that's the other thing like i was talking to somebody one day about did you get caught up because i've got friends who've done great things and they're they're just normal people like anyone else right it's just uh they have jobs and um, they have kids and they have good things and bad things that happen to them. And, but they've won Juno award. So a lot of people think they're these amazingly out of this world people. And, you know, they probably are, but they're just normal people too. So they just do what you do, what everybody else does, get a job, see the world, do some traveling. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, being an independent artist, you have finally dipped your toe back in the, into the music waters recently. You have an EP coming out? What was the, the kind of motivation into getting back together or getting back out there and picking up guitar and singing in front of people again? Okay, so David Letterman, before he quit his late night gig, said to people he wanted to spend more time with his family. And he famously, I think, said, 
make sure you ask them if they're okay with you spending more time with them. So make sh- I think my wife just wants me to get out of the house <laughs> and do something else. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, you know, I spend a lot of time not doing anything musically. I mean, I've always done something for myself. But I started writing again on and off over the last few years. And let's see, Zucker Baby did a few shows over the last few years, like I mentioned, with Age of Electric. And we put out a little single. Well, it's a great song. A couple of years ago. And then I just started writing more on my own. And I'd only really, really written with Reed and Zucker Baby. And, you know, we're all getting older. So we have conversations like, I want to play this, or I'd like to try that. Or I want to play as much as I can. Like, I was just talking to Reed the other day, actually. And he, every time we talk, he says, like, I just want to play music. Like, this is what I do. I want to do it as often as I can. And I want to do it with anyone who wants to play music with me. Um, so he's out there playing, you know, a lot of different gigs and doing some things. And it made me kind of think every time I talked to him and have that kind of conversation, I thought, I don't think I'm a great singer or whatever, but some people do, which is awesome and so flattering and humbling. I'm grateful. So I thought, I'm just going to maybe share some of these songs with people. And if anybody wants to stream it or listen to it, great. So that's p- pretty much my basic motivation. I've got some songs. I write a lot of songs. Not a lot of songs ever see the light of day. But I thought, you know, I'm not bad at this. So I'm just going to throw it out there and see what happens. It'll be fun. Play a few shows. Dust off the old pipes. Everybody's 
glasses Not just another Cinderella storyteller Blowing kisses planning on uh, taking those pipes outside of Alberta and doing some shows around? Uh... I'm going to take it as it comes. I don't want to make too many plans that don't come to fruition and look like, you know, one of those guys. So I'm just going to take it step by step. I'm actually playing a, a, an acoustic show of some new songs from this new EP and some Zucker Baby classics. <laughs> Never before heard in this particular way. Out in Vancouver, on I'm not sure when you're going to air this one, but it's going to be uh, February 8th. So gonna go out there um, and see how that goes, you know. And it, you know, in the big picture, if if I can get out and play a few solo things in some other places, that'd be cool. Um, I don't have a band per se. I've got guys who I want to play with who played on the recording. That uh, you know, if the, if the stars align, it'd be cool to, to play a few shows and see how that goes. But yeah, I'm just gonna take it. Pardon me, kind of step by step and day by day. And if anybody wants to hear it, then I'll go do it if it makes sense. And if nobody wants to call me back, that's cool. I'll be good. I'm fine. Either way. Well, before we get into our, our wrap-up here, um, is there anything about the 90s or that you wanted to talk about that you were thinking about that we didn't touch on or any kind of stories or any kind of opinions? or? You know, the, the 90s really gave birth to uh, what we're experiencing now. I think there's so many bands and so many great groups playing all over the world from Canada and from all parts. Like, you can't turn on you know, CBC two without hearing, you know, four or five just great artists. And, you know, in the eighties, like I might've mentioned earlier, you know, there's really only a few bands they you could think of that were Canadian that were doing anything. Um, besides, you know, the obvious Brian Adams's and Anne Murray's and whatnot, you know, there's just so many Canadian bands doing so many cool things all over the world. And yeah, I just feel like that nineties, there's just so much, going on again, pre cell phone, pre social media, pre internet, from all kind of avenues of music, you know, just such a diverse group of even stuff that maybe wasn't on some of those bills we were talking about just all over the place. Uh, so cool to see. Cause I, it's hard to imagine all that going on without all this technology that's happening now. So, so I can't imagine what's going to be like in another 10 years. Well said, sir. Okay, final question. Um, I've been asking all the guests to pick two kind of quote-unquote hits slash well-known songs and one deep cut from the uh, material they have on Spotify. So, Zucker Baby, what right. are your three tracks to the playlist? This is a tough one. So, as we're talking right now, I'm reaching for two physical compact discs that I have <laughs> to look at the titles because I don't even know some of the songs anymore. Um, well, I think we have to go with Andromeda from the first album, right? Because that was a big song for us and it still really is a lot of people love it so let's do that okay if you think and then should we go with overexposure on the second record sure because it because it was a song but now the deep cut that's a tough one mm. a song that you thought maybe deserves more attention you could have been a single but it wasn't chosen by the label 
anything like that. Mm. Okay, bear with me. I'm just yeah, reading no, a couple I can, of titles. I can edit here. it out. It's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Man, let's see. This, this is me. I'm the worst at deciding. I can't. Just, I can offer suggestions, <laughs> alternatives, but to actually nail me down to an answer is tough. Like make it till Monday, jealousy. I think make it till Monday. You know, because it kind of it didn't. Like, there's a lot of songs that we never played live because we were always the opening band for the bigger band, or we only had a small amount of time to play. So we couldn't stretch out and play a lot of the songs. Like there's a few songs that we never played live that uh, I wish we, we would have had time to do. And so make it to Monday is one of those songs. Cause it was kind of what we were, we were trying to do was this big guitar pop band, like cheap trick or something like that, where it was pop melodic hooks, but had heavy, massive guitars. And that song kind of exemplifies what we were trying to do. So yeah, let's go with that. Excellent choices, sir. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today and tell the Zucker Baby story, man. It was great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. It was fun. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, Get advanced notice of the guests and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected. But as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.